punt's private eye. I'm not here right now. Please leave a message. Hunt, it's Tracy. Got a little treasure hunt for you. Head for the castle on the border and look for a golden hoard. That's the easy part. But who stashed it away and why, Punt? Scrutinise every shred of evidence. You'll need to pull a few strings with this one and maybe even tinkle an ivory. Report back to me when you have answers. Castle on the border? Golden hoard? Tracy had gone a bit Indiana Jones on me this time. I didn't need the staff of Ra to puzzle out that this treasure hunt seemed to involve a piano, and my hand-drawn parchment map, OK AA Road Map of Britain, told me that the castle on the border might be Bishop's Castle in Shropshire. Right, so this is uh, Bishop's Castle. On the border between England and Wales. I have to say, I'm very impressed by the number of pubs. It's a small place, but on arrival I found that big things happen there. The annual stone skimming championships being held. So maybe the bunting is for the world's stone skimmers when they arrive. It says stones are provided or you can bring your own, but they must be British. Don't want any of your foreign stones. But I was on the trail of something even more exciting than throwing British pebbles at a pond. Preliminary inquiries led me to the local college, where last year Secretary Mrs Dowbiggin put out an appeal for old pianos. We had about five pianos donated from the local area. We got Martin Backhouse in to tune the pianos. Martin Backhouse, piano tuner, duly began work assessing the donated instruments. But before long, he returned to the secretary's office, looking worried. I couldn't really read him at all. He just stood in the doorway and said that he needed my attention and the head teachers straight away. So she did just that, and as they walked to the music room together, it was apparent that something was up. Sort of said, I've never seen anything like this in the piano before. What could it be? Some foreign pebbles? A skull? A signed photo of Bobby Crush? He just said, well, take a look at the piano. So we both sort of peered round the door and said, right. Because, no, you've got to look in the keyboard, under the keys. Not in the piano, you notice. Under the keys. And we both sort of went, oh, there's money. And then he says, no, it's not, they're coins, they're sovereigns, they're gold sovereigns. The Golden Horde. And the three of us with the door shut just, what are we going to do now? What, what do we do with them? The temporary answer was to put them in the school safe, along with the exam papers and confiscated mobile phones. But as Tracy had warned me, finding the gold was the easy part. But I'm just still really intrigued to know who put it there and why, to be honest. So were the British Museum and the press, and so am I. There was a mystery in that piano, and Martin Backhouse had lifted the lid on it. Last thing I expected was coins. Although if I'd remembered what I'd been told uh, seven weeks before, which was very interesting because I'm a Christian, and somebody was praying for me, and he shared a scripture with me. And it was going back 2,700 years before, and it was a prophecy given to King Cyrus by the prophet Isaiah. And he said... Um, one of the things he said, you will find treasures hidden in secret places, in places unknown. Oh. And I promptly forgot about it. So seven weeks later, I find the gold. <laughs> Isaiah 45, verse 3. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places. So... 
cue an appropriately spooky chord. And let's see what Martin's 40 years of experience can tell me about this piano. When I revealed more keys, we realised there were actually more gold than I had originally thought. And uh, the three-letter word you used was oh, wow. Yes, uh, that seems appropriate to me. What immediately strikes me looking at the piano is there's not a lot of space there. Right, on, on the piano you have the keys, Yeah. but underneath there's a hollow dust board. Yes. And literally what they'd done was to put these packages resting on the dust board right. so it wouldn't touch the keys. They'd worked it very, very carefully. They must have known what they were doing. So, possibly we're not just talking some random ivory tinkler, but someone who knew how to take a piano apart and put it back together again. So when you were checking the sound of the piano, was there anything uh, amiss with that? No, nothing at all. It was absolutely a typical broadwood of its period. The packages of gold actually didn't affect anything at all. I decide to take a closer look. Name on the frame inside and also on the inside of the lid. John Broadwood and Sons, London. And then down here, just above the keyboard, supplied by Bevan and Mothersole. West Road, Saffron Walden. I suppose they're still there. I wonder who they are. Maybe a trip to Essex is in order. Before I follow any leads eastwards, though, I must drop in on the Hemmings. They're the couple who donated their old family piano to the school, and they live in Bishop's Castle, a mere stone's throw away. Uh, British stone, obviously. We acquired the piano not long after we moved to Saffron Morden in 1983 from a friend of ours who ran a second-hand house clearance shop, and we asked him to look out for a piano so that we could um, have one for the children to learn to play on it. The piano that was sourced was a high-quality, very nice piano. Yeah. yeah. Although we did have it tuned. We did have it tuned, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, the tuner didn't dive right into <laughs> discover what was underneath the uh, keyboard, but there we go. So they owned the piano for 34 years, the gold sitting undiscovered under their noses the whole time. But under the law, assuming no original owner can be found, proceeds will be divided between the current owner, that's the school, and the finder, Martin the piano tuner. I ask the Hemmings whether this doesn't get to them at all. No, no, we're just happy that the yeah. school are going to be the benefactors of it. It's a windfall, and the great thing is it's a windfall that's gone to a, a good cause. I'd love to say I'd be just as generous, but I don't think I would be. So, the Hemmings acquired the piano in 1983 through a house clearance firm in Saffron Walden. Maybe their records would show whose house was cleared and bring us closer to who hid the gold. Would you have records for 1983 by any chance of your clearances? No, well, sadly no. We've got earlier and more recent records, but unfortunately for that period we don't really. We get through dozens of these books over the course of a few years yeah so we i'm afraid we tend not to keep them and is is there anyone around who would have been working for you or just, at that time just my dad and he unfortunately can't remember trying to remember a piano from 30 odd years ago is almost impossible a bit like saying to me do you remember a test of jewels from two weeks ago it's quite hard to remember that <laughs> the house clearers couldn't furnish me with answers but I was in no mood to soft pedal. 
This was a major investigation, and I just needed the key. The key of a major investigation. Do you get it? Lies in the evidence. It was time to look at the coins themselves and see if they offered any more clues. So if you come this way, we'll find some gold. I arranged to meet Peter Reville, Fines Liaison Officer for Shropshire and Herefordshire, at an undisclosed secure location where the gold is carefully stored. All I'm seeing here is the large plastic buckets. Well, it's the best thing to carry your gold around in. A, I was expecting at least a chest <laughs> no. where I could lift the lid. Why don't you pick can that I, up? Can I just see how heavy that is? Oh, that is heavy, isn't it? So in total, Martin found more than six kilos of gold sovereigns and half sovereigns in eight separate packages within inside the piano. In total, there are 913 gold coins from the reigns of Victoria, Edward VII and George V. A single one of these gleaming sovereigns in my hand is worth around £300. The whole stash comes to around 300000 Enough to be worth hiding, but why? Have you got any of the packaging? Yes. Probably the most important piece of packaging is this one. We found this cut up inside it. If I put it in that order, what oh. do you think? <laughs> this is little bits of cardboard for holding the coins. Only this has been cut from a shredded wheat box. Yeah. It clearly says shredded wheat, nature's own food made in England. It is not a food for faddists. That there is probably the key piece of information we have. Shredded Wheat Company of Welling Garden City. That's exactly it. Yeah. And we know that the youngest coin in the hoard is from 1915. But Shredded Wheat don't open their factory in Welling Garden City until 1926. Aha. You can make your own rocket plane launcher. It's free with Welgar Shredded Wheat. So, we could be looking for an unpatriotic hoarder with a fondness for breakfast cereal. Maybe they were collecting the toys. I'd found the shred of evidence Tracy wanted, and it showed that at least some of the gold must have been put in the piano after 1926. But can we be more precise? I took some photos of the cards and showed them to one of the world's leading authorities on shredded wheat packaging and indeed any packaging, Robert Opie at the Museum of Packaging, Advertising and Brands in London. I think we go here are a few just panels from the shredded wheat packets. When we dig, here we go. Aha. Uh -huh. This is, I think, what you're looking for. Oh, yes. That's... It's the same kind of card, it's the same colour printing. That is exactly the and same. And if we print, yes. overlay the pieces of the jigsaw I think they fit pretty well yes now these were cards that were inserted between the different layers of shredded wheat so this is a shredded wheat layer separator this card that's a very good way of putting it now the feel of this card is 30s the print is 30s and my suspicion is, looking at the fragments that you have, we come across this phrase which says, unable to accept any further CO something, and I think it's probably coupons, in which case it's something to do with the outbreak of the Second World War in 1939. It would also be a very logical date to be stashing your gold in your piano, wouldn't it? People were scared at what was going to come, hmm. 
and it seemed diligent for people not only to put away food supplies, also to put their life savings away in some space that they would know where to find, but perhaps nobody else would. Yeah. Are you a step further forward now? Yes. It is actually looking at it. It, it is a p- perfect ready-cut size. Don't forget these had to fit into quite a specific space. So they are sort of perfect for the job. You know, that would be so convenient. Happened to be on his breakfast table, eating shredded wheat. Yes. The perfect size of cardboard appears out of the boxes if my magic. Yes. And he's found the solution. A small breakthrough. Whoever hid the last of the gold probably did it on the eve of World War II and possibly after breakfast. But who might have wanted it hidden? I need to talk to someone who had tried to track down lost stoners of treasure before, who might be able to give me some tips. A few years back, I had to open 30 bank boxes in London. The Antiques Roadshow's John Foster. And these were unclaimed bank boxes. The earliest was 1899, the last one was the mid-1970s. And they had everything in them, from false teeth to a lot of gold. There was a 1960s yellow pages, which on every page had a numeral or a letter blacked out, so it was some sort of code book. But the majority of those boxes, you could just tell from the contents, i.e. the jewellery and the letters and what was in them, that these were Jewish people and who had perished. And this bank had spent in excess of 250,000 over 20 years trying to trace these people, and they didn't trace one of them. This country is at war with Germany. Gold is famously a safe haven during troubled times. But was there any Jewish connection in Saffron Walden? Ray, a coin dealer in the town, gave me a theory. The uh, possible scenario, which my good wife came up with, which is plausible, plausible. That's all I'm interested in. Yeah, yeah. You see, the, the reason that this possible scenario might work is that in Saffron Walden, there were a Jewish hospice, or what was it, Denise? It was a hospice. Yeah, um, Jewish Home and Hospital for Incurables. Right. In 1939, at the outbreak of World War II, because of the fear of air rage, the home was evacuated to Chesterford House. Great Chesterford, just down the road, you see, near yeah. Southern Walden. Yeah. So, obviously, if there was Jewish people there, their relations, possibly in Germany itself, who couldn't get out, sent them gold jewellery or whatever, yeah. and said to them, invest this in something and I'll see you at the end of the war. Right. And, of course, obviously a lot of them didn't. They hid it away in the piano, which would be nobody would ever look in a million years, I would have thought. It sounds possible, and a hospice might be somewhere people would be passing on secrets, but Nazi Germany stepped up customs checks from the mid-1930s. So after going to all the trouble and risk of moving your valuables abroad and converting them into sovereigns, surely you'd put them in a bank rather than banking on a nearby piano. The fact that the gold was so carefully hidden also suggests the possibility of ill-gotten gains. Had there been a great Saffron Walden heist? A look through the press archive throws up a few local robberies, including one at nearby Audley End House in 1930. But unless the piano also contained some rolled-up paintings and silver cutlery, that can be ruled out. There don't seem to have been any gold sovereign robberies in this relatively well-behaved part of the world. 
Tantalizingly, the last definite time and place we have for the piano is arriving at the Hemmings house in 1983. Before that, the only definite time and date we have is November the 6th, 1906, when the Great Eastern Railway Company's records show that it was delivered to Bevan and Mothersole, the suppliers whose name is on the piano itself, at a house in West Road, Saffron Walden. And we've got trade directories here. Which we're I head for the town library, where in the trade directory I discover one of their original adverts from the 1890s. So here we are, Bevan and Mothersole. Pianoforte, organ and harmonium tuners and repairers. Piano, organ, violin, mandolin and banjo lessons. <laughs> I love the idea of Victorian banjo playing. That's great. Special arrangements for lessons in the country. Every description of musical instruments supplied 25% discount. New pianos from £18. So they supplied pianos for clients, but they also gave lessons, they tuned them, and they hired them out for special occasions, so there's no real way of knowing if the piano stayed with them or not. The mother soul family remained in the same house for several generations. The electoral roll and a few phone calls reveal that the last mother soul, Francis, died in 1993, the house being sold soon afterwards. But a neighbour, Olive Newman, now in her 80s, remembers Francis and her parents. My first encounter with the Mother Soul family would have been age three and a half when my family moved next door but one to the house in which they lived. They were very quiet. It was mother and daughter, very quiet ladies, both heavily built. We used to remark that they always went shopping about a quarter to one, sometime like that, walked to the town, which seemed very strange because a lot of shops closed in the lunch hour in those days. But anyway, we don't know where they went. They might have gone to banks or something like that. One thing I particularly remember, Mr Mothersoul, a very small, wiry man, had a, a little car. I wonder if it was a three-wheeler, but it was just shaped like a wasp with a pointed abdomen at the back. And uh, he used to go about doing musical jobs. I think he probably tuned pianos and that sort of thing. And he died, I don't know when, but um, these ladies were left in the house. The online probate register reveals that Charles, the driver of the wasp-shaped car, died in 1945. But he had a wife and daughter the ones who'd make mysterious lunchtime trips to the bank. So if he was the nervous shredded wheat eater who stashed the coins before the war, why didn't they apparently know the loot was there? While I'm still pondering this, I get called back to the local studies library, where archive assistant Zafia Everett produces a startling new document. About three months ago, somebody came in to my office, a lady came in and brought two bills from Mother Soul family. One for the redecorating of the house during the war, 1942, for a large amount of money, uh, and the other one, piano lessons for the daughter, Frances, Mother Soul. And when I saw this bill and the amount of money that was spent, and the fact that the cellars and the attics were whitewashed, which is extreme, especially at this time, of the war when there were shortages of wood, all the building materials, the paint. This lady has ordered a prestigious firm of decorators to come in and redecorate the house. And I suspect it was Mrs. Mothersole's money. 
and she hidden it, perhaps even from her husband. But this is absolute speculation. Oh, I'm that's, just guessing. That's very much our business. <laughs> it does seem odd to have your house lavishly redecorated right in the middle of the war. Was the basement brickwork the only thing they were covering up? Well, according to Olive, the mother souls don't sound like extravagant types. Latterly, I think she must have got rid of her old furniture and there was a sort of modern easy chair which wasn't very nice in there. But they were such quiet people, obviously artistic, interested in music and more like Quakers, really. Did Frances' mother soul sell off her old piano? Where was it before it made its way to the Hemmings? I wondered if a local piano tuner might remember it and I met up with David Andrews from Cambridge firm Miller's. Ever since I've joined the trade, which was when I was 16, people have always said, you may find a fortune in a piano, and I've never found one. <laughs> <laughs> and, and to think that I could have tuned that one and sitting underneath those keys was that gold. Yeah. And then when the address came up and the two names, yeah. that did ring a bell. The Broadwood struck a chord. But where had he seen it? I remember the house sort of being fairly cluttered up with a lifetime's collection of things. Right. And the piano was in a bit of a state. And she used to say, oh, I need it, you know, nice, because I have people come here and play it. And they said to her, well, it really needs restoring. Oh, I'm 80-odd. I can't be having that done now. Right. So rather than do proper repairs that were costly, you'd bodge it up the best you could and she was quite happy with that. Perhaps there's some gold in that. <laughs> A call to the gold's finder, Martin Backhouse, though, confirmed that no bodges had been done on the piano in question. So in the absence of any firm sightings, Bevan and Mothersole remain its only documented owners. Is there any indication at all that this small family music business could have had a small fortune to hide in one of the tools of their trade? From old directories and records, I learned that Edward Mothersole, the one with the wasp car, was the stepson of one Professor William Bevan. Bevan died in 1899, and his newspaper obituary depicts a bit of a one-man band, a teacher-conductor-musical whiz-kid who could build and repair organs and pianos, as well as performing a party trick where he played the cornet and piano simultaneously, possibly while Simon Cowell's Victorian ancestor watched admiringly. What the obituary doesn't mention, but the London Gazette archive does, is that in 1882 he went bankrupt. Bevan, that is, not Simon Cowell's Victorian ancestor. For two years after this social disgrace, Bevan disappears from the record and next pops up as a church organist in Saffron Walden. We're going up to the organ console. Up a spiral staircase with a room for banister. One of his successors is recently retired organist Andrew Malcolm. In the 1880s, to be appointed the organist at this church, was that a prestigious post? Well, I think it would be. And if you read some of the history of the organist here, there's a, a bloke called Fry, I've forgotten his first name, who was appointed organist here when he was 12 mm. and stayed in post for a long, long time. See, these are the dates I have, organist. Yes, here is, here is this person I told you about, 
Fry and was organised for 64 years. Oh, wow. <laughs> so Mr Bevan, I'm afraid, wasn't organised very long, was he? Oh. One wonders why. Yes. Was it by choice or was he eased out? William Bevan was Saffron Walden's organist for just a few months before being moved on to Debden, a much less grand parish. Did he not fit in? Had he not mentioned his bankruptcy on his CV? We don't know. What we do know is that in 1884, Bevan, now in his 40s, gets married to a wealthy widow called Mother Soul, goes into business with his new stepson Edward and, judging by their adverts, is working harder than ever. My sense is of a man changed by the disgrace of bankruptcy, saving hard, resolved to ensure the family against any repeat and bequeathing this attitude to his stepson, who carried on adding to the family stash, possibly while eating healthy high-fibre cereal. But if this guess is right, why did the hidden money not get passed down the generations? Dr Judith Rowbottom, historian and fellow sleuth, has a theory with a literary inspiration. Remember in Charles Dickens, when Barkis dies, he's had this case. He's carried with him for years and years and years. And he never tells his fatal loving Clara that in that is a huge amount of money in gold. He never tells her. And it's David Copperfield who opens the box and finds it. So you don't tell the women folk, except perhaps on something like your deathbed, if they happen to be handy on your deathbed. Mm. It's how family heirlooms and treasures and things like that go missing for generations. Before perhaps eventually being found by a fellow piano tuner in Shropshire, to whom the card-wrapped packages of coins suggested Isaiah's Old Testament prophecy of hidden riches. Reverend Richard Coles knows the Bible and knows his keyboards. If I were to all of a sudden take um, a panel off my piano and find within gold sovereigns, all manner of texts would come shrieking into my mind, I'm sure. But that would be a high candidate. Right. Uh, and also piano tuners tend not to be amply rewarded for what they do. So a piano tuner might feel especially delighted to discover a hoard of gold in this unlikely place because no one ever found their way to a hoard of gold through tuning a piano before. Maybe it's a tuner leaving a wonderful reward for another tuner, some <laughs> anonymous confrere in history, yeah. uh, to enrich him with this surprising bounty. In the end, the piano is very unwilling to give up its secret. And I wonder whether the hidden riches of the prophecy means hidden not under a keyboard, but from prying PIs, journalists and bureaucrats, none of whom have been able to solve this musical mystery. In the end, my report for Tracy contains plenty of notes, but not necessarily in the right order. <laughs>